Welcome back to the Thriving Lawyers podcast. This is Michael Kahn. I am one half of real-time creative learning experiences. My partner and co-founder is Chris Osborne. We created this podcast as an opportunity to talk with other lawyers about how they cope and thrive in the practice of law so we can build, build a community of lawyers who help each other. That's why we call it the Thriving Lawyers Podcast, plural, because we want to build a community of lawyers to support each other. I am a former lawyer and currently a licensed professional counselor. And we have yet another excellent guest for the podcast today, Sean O'Brien, who is a lawyer and a professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City Law School. You've talked about it being a calling, and you've talked about that it's impossible to do the work without getting close to your clients, and that if you leave, there's no one behind you to help these folks, or no one behind you who can do the quality of work you're doing, or have the same motivation or passion. And maybe there are folks, but they're limited in numbers. And I remember during the last program we did, with uh, you and Quinn and Joe and uh, Ricky Kidd, who's another exoneree, that Quinn said, how can I take vacation if I know that there are people in prison, some of them on death row, how can I take vacation if I know that they are there? What do you think about what you had to say? I have mixed feelings about bringing young people into the work, especially my daughter, Mm -hmm. Uh, for that very reason. And of course, at the law school, it's very satisfying. I do have former students who are running federal public defender's offices and Mm -hmm. state public defender's offices. And I'm working with students on cases right now. And I can see the ones who are going to get into this and do well. But there's always this sense of guilt that, gosh, I I know what's ahead for these people. And there is a lot of heartbreak in this Mm -hmm. uh, because you're exposing yourself to all kinds of of trauma from different levels. I always meet the victims of the crimes my client commits. And so there's that trauma, just looking at the crime scene photos themselves and looking at the... So you say you meet the victims of the crimes? Is that what you say? I meet their families. And if, and of course, if the victim is still living, I'll meet the victim. But most Mm -hmm. of my clients, I can count on one hand the number of non-homicide cases I've done in the last 30 years. And see that you uncover the client's traumatic background. So you imagine what he went through. And and so there's a load of secondary trauma, not to mention just simply trying to save a client from a system that is just hell-bent to kill him. And that just carries a, a load of trauma. There was one, I'll tell you what my low point was in doing this, was representing Lloyd Schloop in 1993. And his case went on to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it became the standard for habeas corpus review of cases involving potential innocence. And that case is Schlup versus Delo. But he came within a few minutes of execution on November 19th of 1993. So this is 13 months after Ricky Grubbs was executed. And I don't know if you remember when Justice Blackman did his interview with Ted Koppel and Nina Totenberg, 
where he announced that he was going to stop affirming death sentences and mm. that he gave that interview the night that Lloyd was scheduled to be executed. And I have professor friends of mine who show that interview where he explains this is going to be a due process uh, problem for me because yes, the eighth amendment says, and the due process clause we says we can take life as long as we apply due process. So there's no question the death penalty per se is constitutional, but we can't do it in a constitutional way. And we've demonstrated that. So he was going to go, and this was right before his decision in Collins v. Collins. That was the same night that Lloyd Schlup was going to be executed. And I had flown to St. Louis when the governor said, we're going to execute Lloyd. We're not going to uh, stay his execution. And so I flew to St. Louis and was headed to the rental car counter to drive down to Potosi and be with Lloyd. And there's an ABC camera crew interviewing me as I was running through the airport. And, and somebody to get the rental car, so they're asking me these questions. And I'm just throwing answers over my shoulder as I'm headed down the escalator from the concourse to the rental car agency. And they cut into Justice Blackman's interview to show that, if you can call it an interview, to show that interview right. with me. And I had a, a, a client, a, a, a professor friend call me up and he said, I got that interview to show my class. I didn't realize that they cut to your case in the middle of it, but you look like hell. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and people actually say, of course, that was 27 years ago. People actually say I look younger and healthier today than I did in that picture uh, or in that uh, interview. So to make a long story short, what happened in that case is that the victim's mother, I had gone to see the victim's mother and we had talked about the crime and I laid out all the evidence and I didn't ask her to do anything. I didn't, I just, you know, she had questions about the crime because nobody had ever talked to her. And that night she called Governor Carnahan and said, I'm Arthur Dade's mother. I know the boys who are saying that Lloyd Schlup is innocent. They were friends of my son. And if Lloyd Schlup was guilty, they would not be making those statements. I don't think he's guilty. I want you to stop the execution. Wow. And so he stopped the execution to give me an opportunity to petition the U.S. Supreme Court. And that was what led to the Schlup versus Delo actual innocence standard. If you talk to death penalty lawyers, or if you talk to innocence lawyers, they use the phrase actual innocence. It actually comes from the decision in that you can always get a habeas corpus petition entertained if you can supplement your constitutional arguments with a colorable showing of actual innocence. So it's created a safety net uh, for innocence prisoner, innocent prisoners in the death penalty. But it was the day after that we got the stay of execution in the evening, probably around eight o'clock. He was scheduled to be executed at midnight and I was exhausted. I drove back to St. Louis, checked into a hotel and then going to the airport to get home. I missed the flight. I overslept. I was exhausted. And that was really what set me into therapy was I called my wife from the airport. I was running up to the jetway as the jet was pulling away and I just collapsed at that point. I was so exhausted physically and emotionally. And when Ellen picked me up at the airport, she drove me straight to a psychologist's office because she said, you didn't hear what you sounded like on the phone. So she set up an appointment for you to go to see someone right from the airport. 
Wow. And you were amenable to that. At the time, I knew that she was right. And was it helpful? It was, absolutely. And I don't mind saying it's been, what did I say, 27 years now. And my career hasn't really faltered since. Maintained a good level of legal quality, but it was depression, post-secondary trauma. And so for a period of time, they started me on Wellbutrin, which kind of helped level me out. Eventually, they tried some other medications and an antidepressant, right? And eventually, I ended up on Prozac for a period Mm -hmm. of time. And, but the, the thing that was probably the most valuable, the medication was helpful, but with the help of the psychologist, I pulled my staff together and I told them what was happening with me and I could identify people around me where I could see that risk. And this psychologist who's now retired, she's incredibly wonderful. Her name is Sharon Barb O'Connor, helped us by setting up anytime we had a close call in a case. If we come within a few days or even a few minutes, we, we've had a couple of cases where we came, actually midnight came and went with no stay, but the client survived miraculously and we went on to win the case. But those cases are hard and they take a toll. So any close call or any time an employee wanted to, they could go see Sharon and the office would cover that expense. And whenever we work, and of course, this is another reason for working as a team, because you can share this responsibility. And when you're the one whose judgment and reactions are compromised because of the load of trauma that you're carrying, you don't necessarily get to be the judge of when <laughs> you're not the best right. judge right. Of, of when you need to go somewhere. We had a, a, an office debriefing after every one of those episodes. And I attribute that- Just amongst the staff? Among the staff. Debriefing? Uh Everybody who was involved. And uh, Sharon would preside over that, uh, maybe facilitate is a better word. And we could talk about what happened. And no two cases or no two briefings were the same. There were some where we talked about the legal issues and about what could have been done. It was an incredible process for learning because- It was a space that enabled us to look back in a a carefully structured setting so that there's no recrimination, no guilt. If you had only done this client would still be alive. That never happened. No judgment. No judgment, but nothing but nurturing support and understanding. And and it was an incredible uh, tool to bring. And so that process was very important. The other thing that was really important personally to me, and and again, this was Sharon, she explained to me the fight or flight uh, Mm -hmm. mechanism that kicks in with the human body and what it does to your brain chemistry, but what the constant load of anxiety does. And she says, you need to get a rigorous exercise program going. At least three times a week, you need to hit the gym and you need to, for a minimum of 45 minutes to an hour, you need to work up a sweat. You need to get your heart rate up. You really need to work out because that's what helps flush those brain endorphins. And of course, that's a late, I'm sure the process is much more complicated than that. But I've added that to, that's probably the single most important thing I did to ensure my longevity in this kind of work is to build that in. I mean, before COVID-19, I was at the UMKC Rec Center, which is a wonderful place to work out. 
I, I met my workout partner there at 6.30 every morning and we'd work out till eight o'clock and then I'd go have coffee and hit my 8.30 class and I was ready to go for the day. And after COVID-19, of course, I am running in the park every morning or I'm riding my, I did a 20 mile bicycle ride Sunday and I'm in my mid sixties now and probably in better physical condition than I was 27 years ago because I've been religious about that. I can't go three days. Uh, without a workout. I cannot skip I'm the same, two days. I'm the same way. I just actually told my partner that the other day. If I yeah. go, three days is the max without exercise for me. Right. I have this fog that sets in the beginning. It's just this, I can't really describe it, but I know that I need a workout. And so no matter what's going on, I, I schedule it. It's part of my day. It's my most important appointment every day. <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. That's a good way to put it. I've talked to my lawyer clients about that. I, I do EAP work or LAP work, lawyer assistance program work here in Vancouver, BC. And for some lawyers, it is talking to them about making, putting it in your, in your appointment calendar, like it would anything else, like yeah. a trial like a hearing appointment, a date and time, or a meeting with a client or anything like that, that needs to be as much of a priority. Right. Because it makes me more efficient. It makes me mm -hmm. more alert. I do better work. Mm -hmm. Something that, that Gandhi said that really resonates with me, he once uh, uh, remarked that I have so much to do today that I'm going to have to meditate for two hours instead of one. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. I love that. So, yeah, so you've done a lot for yourself for self-care, and you've created a really healthy culture where for your staff and, and lawyers to know that it's a place where they can ask for help and be vulnerable and look at, mistakes and not be judged. That's important. And is, this, is this kind of approach taken at your clinics as well with the students? I do with the students. Unfortunately, after Sharon retired, I've not found a therapist who is her level of skill. I talk with the students. I've learned a lot from Sharon, but I'm mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly not licensed to do that kind of debriefing. But fortunately with students, one of the things that I do is they're a little bit limited in their exposure to mm -hmm. a lot of the traumatic things. Like for example, the childhood trauma and neglect. I do use professional mitigation specialists to do that work. If, if a student is involved in that work, they're in the company of me or a qualified individual. And then we do the debriefing after the interview and it's a learning process. What did we learn? When we spoke with this individual, how do you think we made her feel through the way what we were talking about and how we were talking about it? How could we have done that better? What and where do we go from here in our investigation? And and students learn a great deal from that. I have, in fact, working with a couple of former students on cases right now. The what I've been doing as I get into a new case, I'll take my star pupil and if they're interested, I can set up a court appointed funding process so that they can actually take this case as their job. One of my students, Jenny Merrigan, after training her on mitigation work and she did 
uh, helped me with a research project. We, out of my office, wrote the supplementary guidelines for the mitigation function of the capital defense teams for the uh, death penalty representation project of the America Bar Association. So we did all that research. We wrote these standards, the uh, commentary to the ABA guidelines. And Jenny was my main research assistant with that. And she did a lot of the legwork and the interviews that went into that project. And then we took our guidelines on the road. I said, we're, now we're going to do a case, Jenny. You're going to be the mitigation specialist and you're going to follow those rules that we wrote. And we succeeded in getting a client, not only getting him off of death row, but we got him a, a life sentence on which he is eligible for parole. And uh, that's rare. And if I told you about the case, you'd really be surprised <laughs> at that result. And then I'm currently working with a lawyer named Lindsay Runnels, who I did exactly the same thing with. I involved mm -hmm. her in a project, trained her in the practice of, of mitigation work. And now she's doing amazing work in death penalty cases and in innocence cases. So she's... yeah. Yeah, she's been out of law school for 10 years, and she's already been involved in four exonerations. I want to spend the last few minutes we have talk to talk a little bit more. And you've done a wonderful job really being open about self-care and how you implement it on a regular basis. I want to talk a little bit more about that, but I don't want to leave this point of discussion without uh, making the point that that more help is needed out there. We need more lawyers doing this work or assisting with this work. We actually have a program coming up with you, a follow-up to the program we did earlier to focus on what can lawyers do to help push back on the systemic injustices that are going on. So I just wanted to mention that we'll have more information on that program as we get closer to mid-September 18th when we're doing the program. So Sean, going back to what Quinn said about taking a vacation and how, how can I do that? How do you take a vacation? How do you do that? Uh, that is a really good question because I don't vacation as much as I should. There's no question about that. In fact, after that episode that I told you about with the Lloyd Schlup case, after that aired, Lloyd called me a couple of days later and he said, they put me back in the unit and all of the guys down here saw that interview and, and we all got together and decided they appointed him to call me up to tell me that I need a vacation. And so <laughs> <laughs> they appointed Lloyd to call they you up. They appointed Lloyd to call me up and say, Dude, take a vacation. <laughs> wow. And now that's something I have my wife to thank for. We do yeah. uh, take vacations and we don't take them for a long time. I should take longer vacations, but it's difficult when you have a caseload where, because I've been on vacation an execution warrant was issued. I had to cut it short and come back. Very stressful to do that. So I typically take my vacations from Wednesday to Wednesday. So I have the weekend in the middle. I plan ahead of time and I can clear my calendar for two weeks, even though I'm going to be gone for one week effectively. And I just tell people on the first, when I'm leaving Wednesday, I'm going to be out of the office this week, which is true. And then the next week, I say, I'm going to be out of the office that week, too, which is also true. But I've got two days to get everything in shape for leaving. And then I've got 
two days when I get back to get back into. And then I don't, my feet don't really hit the ground until that following Monday. So you need those cushion days coming back, don't you? I always exactly. try to build those in as well. Exactly. The other thing I used to do was, I shouldn't say this is going to get aired everywhere. I used to lie to my staff about when I was coming back. And I'd tell them <laughs> it was two days after, you know, I was just, the tournament was going to be that Monday after that second right. Wednesday. Right. Uh, and I come back on Thursday. And, yes, you, and won't, you won't things, be able to use this, uh, that trick anymore. Assuming your staff listens to this, well, that know, might be a big assumption. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not in that office anymore. So they, okay. but I think they figured me out because if things were always humming like a well-oiled machine when I got back. A couple more questions, Sean, though, related to, to this. How do you, like when you're on vacation or when you're home, and you're spending time with your family or friends. How do you how do you shut it off? Boy, it is hard to do. And the thing that one of the things I was experiencing and through my early therapy before therapy, I'd wake up in the middle of the night with heart palpitations that would just jerk my whole body. And I could go through the whole set of PTSD symptoms, and they were all there very powerfully. And so you have to find a way to shut it off. And so it's difficult for me to sit down and do nothing. I have to get engaged in something. One of the things I had to do was take was find a hobby. And so it's been about 25 years ago, I took up silversmithing. And so I'll go down to my basement, I'll fire, fire up a torch and uh, melt some silver and put some stones in it. And I have something really beautiful at the end of it. And when you've got uh, a 1500 degree torch in front of you, you focus on that. It's like you're right. in a trance. In it. All about the focus. Yeah. Bicycling, getting out, seeing the scenery and the race to train this weekend, lost badly, but it was fun. And those kind of things that you have to focus on what you're doing. Traveling, getting out to Colorado. We love Monterey, California. I love to jog from the wharf down around Asilomar Beach and back and then drive on down the Big Sur. Nature is really important. Walking, being, just being away from it. To me, it takes a minimum of three days right. to chill down to a baseline. And all it takes is one five minute phone call to snap you right back to your pre-vacation mm -hmm. level of anxiety. Or, but, and, but let me ask you a question though, non-vac, like just like going home mm -hmm. for the evening, let's say you're, you're done for the day. Are there small things that you do that help you stay present with with your wife or, are, or with someone you're spending time with out at dinner or something like that two of our small things are corgis ellen and i are real corgi uh, lovers you know? yeah <laughs> so ellen has yeah. a corgi too and so we're real involved with our pets and we trade they're well trained yeah. and they're uh just adorable but ellen and i have been through some you know, rough things together. And she's been so mm -hmm. supportive of me that this COVID-19 sequestration, yeah. I've, I've heard a lot of people say they're going crazy, but for me, gosh, this is great. I'm locked in a house with the woman of my dreams in a well-stocked, <laughs> if I put a message in a bottle, that's what it would say. We're not encouraging substance abuse out there. Just, uh, it's okay. No, I, seriously, any anything in moderation is fine. And, and dogs, of course, or pets in general. That sadly, my my wonderful dog of 14 years died about three weeks ago. But she was my parasympathetic nervous system triggerer. That was what we were going to call her. Too long a name, though. So 
We just called her Biko. But she, yeah, all I needed to do was lay on the floor with her and I was grounded. Yeah, so I definitely relate to that with your two corgis. Yeah, with Roscoe and Dooley, I'll sit on the floor. And then I also have a cat right. named Tucker Buddy. And the cats and the dogs all get along great. And so home is a refuge. That's so important. Yeah. And we don't do complicated things. We might sit mm-hmm. and just read together or we'll sit sure. and watch. Quality time where you're each doing something else. Yeah. I love that. That's one of my favorite things to do with Stephanie, just where we're doing something else, but we're in the same place. And silversmithing is a big part of it. And uh, and I don't sell any of it. Ellen has a, first, a right of first refusal on everything I make. But if you want one of my pieces, you have to show up at a charity office. Well, I'll have to do that once, <laughs> once I can cross the border again. Uh, All right. I'll have to do that, Sean. So, Sean, we need to, boy, I could talk another two hours with you. And I will, offline, I'm sure. But anything, any last thing you want to say before we uh, wrap up our talk for today? There are a lot of things I could say. There are a lot of lawyers who think they want to do uh, what the kind of things that we do. And there's, you, you tend to get a lot of recognition for this kind of work, but that's not why anybody does it. But uh, it's not the kind, it's not for everybody, but everybody has something to offer when you're talking about what we're going to be talking about in Georgia soon. Sister Helen Prejean is mm. a friend of mine, and she talks about getting involved in anti-capital punishment work. And she says, everybody has something to offer. You don't need a special skill. You don't need anything other than contribute what you have to contribute. If all you can do is bake a pie, bake a pie and bring it to a meeting. So if you're a lawyer and you want to help with this stuff, the Bar Association is responsible for a lot of initiatives that don't require that you commit to living in blue collar housing your whole life uh, or a certain lifestyle. If you want to keep your lifestyle and your profession and your income, you can donate to just causes. You can help influence policy in the legislature. You can influence policy by governors. You can influence legislation. You can sponsor initiatives in your local bar association to reform criminal justice and do something about mass incarceration. Everybody has something to offer to social justice. Sean, thank you so much. And uh, you are an inspiration to me. And I'm sure a lot of the folks out there and obviously the clients that you are working with and worked for, I'm sure are, are so grateful for what you do. And you and I will talk again soon. All right, Michael. It was great to talk to you. Thanks, Sean. And uh, that will be it for our our talk with Sean O'Brien. We'll see you next time. Thanks.